Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. It's uh, post C2E2 and uh, still uh, feeling the, uh, the, the con, uh, not con crud, but uh, certainly I'm, uh, I'm weaker than I was uh, a couple days ago. I'm glad I took all this time off from work. But I uh, have great conversations for you. One in particular I had to get out today, and that's with Ethan Van Skyver, because uh, we're kind of previewing DC's Rebirth. Uh, Ethan is the co-creator of most of the Rebirth projects up to date, Flash Rebirth, Green Lantern Rebirth with Jeff Johns. And I figured he is the guy to talk to to, to determine as abstractly as possible what does it mean when, uh, when we talk about uh, Rebirth for the DC Universe and these characters. So Ethan goes into that. He also talks about how he is uh, currently challenging himself to do more work than ever. He is admittedly a slow art artist, but uh, really wants to do at least 12 issues this year. Talks about his process and how that is changing. And we have a great conversation. I, I know of late I haven't been very positive of what DC has been doing and have voiced my frustration on several of these episodes uh, Ethan is kind enough to take that as well, but is uh, you know there to say, hey man, um, I think you're going to like what you see from DC Rebirth. We'll know more at the end of this weekend with WonderCon, but I thought it would be great to uh, hear Ethan kind of uh, give us more clues as we hear about uh, some of the initial creative teams and assignments that everybody has, and maybe hopefully we'll get more information on what Rebirth is all about as it starts at the end of May with an 80-page giant Featuring art by Van Skyver and Ivan Rice and uh, a couple others. Gary uh, Frank is in there as well. Um, and uh, Jeff Johns is writing it. But yeah, I kind of figured that, you know, being such a longtime Jeff Johns collaborator uh, on things like the Sinestro Corps War and, uh, you know, uh, various, uh, you know, Ethan drew the first issue of Convergence. So Ethan's always kind of a go to guy when DC's about to make a big move. And I just wanted to get as much as he could talk about on the air on this episode of Word Balloon. On part two, a short interview with Internet pioneer Mr. Skin. That's right, Mr. Skin. Um, I'll, I'll admit it. I've I've been going to Mr. Skin since the late 90s when it began. And uh, he just impresses me as this guy who's really created this incredible business. And yeah, it's a business of celebrity nudity, if you don't know. Uh, it was parodied in the movie Knocked Up. But uh, he's he's very funny and a good guy, and I find his story fascinating and how he operates his uh, website. So we check in with Mr. Skin. He just had the Anatomy Awards, uh, just alongside the Academy Awards. And uh, we had recent celebrity nudity on things like Dare, uh, Deadpool. We talk about that and a few other things. And, uh, you know, I, I like the guy, and I was happy to welcome him. I'm a big proponent of uh, the freedom of speech, and Mr. Skin's uh, business certainly falls under that. So it's a pleasure to welcome Mr. Skin to Word Balloon to wrap things up today. I hope you enjoy today's show. Of course, as always, Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much for your support. In fact, uh, made some new uh, friends uh, via Patreon and the PayPal uh, features that are at the front page of wordballoon.com. A lot of people came up and said hello this weekend that are already uh, League of Word Balloon listeners, and uh, I thank them, and it was great. It was great seeing everybody. So thank you for your support. If you can't afford it, it's not a big deal, and Word Balloon is always going to be free. But if you want to help the show out and uh, help me out in my travels and uh, my networking endeavors and stuff, if you go to uh, wordballoon.com, there is a Patreon ad there that if you click on it, it will take you to my Patreon page and a bunch of videos explaining what I'm doing. There's also a tab at wordballoon.com for that. So thank you very much for your support. Word Balloon is also brought to you 
by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where great deals continue to happen at InStock Trades on things like the trade for the beauty. My buddy Jeremy Hahn and Jason Hurley, excellent book from Image. Uh, they're already uh, hard at work on uh, Volume 2, but it's a great police procedural that has an amazing sexual transmitted disease that makes people affected better looking. So would you trade everything? Because it takes about two years for the beauty to burn into you and and kill you. But, uh, you know, the good side effect is you will never be more attractive and are people willing to sacrifice that, uh, you know, sacrifice their lives for two years of absolute beauty. Great idea for a story. Excellent first volume. It's 50% off. You just It's only uh, $4.99. You can get other things like the Captain America Omnibus uh, featuring Cap and the Falcon. Uh, this one is volume two. It's uh, Stan Lee, Gary Friedrich, John Romita, several other great artists uh, and writers. But it's when uh, Cap and the Falcon split up. And uh, it is 50% off. It's $49.99. You can get Superman the Golden Age Trade Paperback Volume 1 with an incredible Darwin Cook cover. Uh, it is uh, outstanding, and it's uh, 50% off just $9.99. You can get Nailbiter uh, hardcover, the Murder Edition. Joshua Williamson writing that. Mike Henderson is the artist. Uh, excellent book. It is 50% off, $17.49. Just a few of the great deals that you can find at InStockTrades.com. Check it out for yourself. We'll give you more deals at the end of the show. InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, let us catch up with our pal Ethan Van Skyver and see what's going on. Um, you'll catch us in mid-conversation, and there's an explanation why right at the beginning of our talk, and I hope you'll understand. What can I tell you? You know, I was in a rush. But uh, here's Ethan Van Skyver and a great conversation from Word Balloon. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. You, you have to tell that to people. Okay. I, I will say it right now. Uh, we, we just started recording uh, that uh, with Ethan Van Skyver. It is good to see you. Or hear, hear you, dude. Thanks. Welcome back. You too. But I have, to, I have to confess that Ethan and I have been talking for about 25 minutes and thought we were recording and had some wonderful Golden Age Hollywood uh, observations and uh, a few other things, and uh, I suddenly look up and realize, because I'm like, I better check the recording and make sure things are going. Nothing. Nothing. You weren't recording. And it's a shame because, really, I mean, some of the things that we were discussing, I, I, I mean, could have cured the ill. I mean, we were really <laughs> saying brilliant and profound. <laughs> we, were, we were this close to a cure. Oh, witty it's, it's very it, – uh, yeah, name, name the disease, and, and I think our cure would have, uh, would have handled it. But – I, we pick up the conversation now, and in fact, to to get us uh, up to speed, uh, I I guess as you were saying, uh, you feel incredibly productive lately, and are uh, you are challenging yourself? I'm assuming this year yeah. to to do uh, do twelve at least twelve issues, if not more. Yeah, no, and not just not just this year. I mean, from now on, sure. Um, and and you know, part of it is I kind of look at. Uh, just to to um, repeat myself to you, but to actually the listening public now who missed all this, I, I you know I really I miss being um, a monthly comic book artist. I, I just thought for the longest time that that was kind of a job for for people who just wanted to do a lot of grunt work, and it did. It, it's hard to be creative, and it's hard to do anything that that was brilliant or really you know interesting or inspiring when you're working on that kind of a hamster wheel 
And um, that was so wrong. It was just the, a wrong-headed approach to doing comics. Um, because I knew for, you know, I've known since I was 12 that comics are disposable and you're not really meant to be, um, you know, laboring over pages for like a week, two weeks at a time. Uh, you're supposed to be drawing fast and sharp and clever um, and and loose. And I think the faster, the, the more you do this, the more consistently you sit down and produce a single page in a single day the better your drawing becomes. I mean, you know, you look at guys like Gil Kane, you know, John mm -hmm. Byrne. I mean, the, what were these guys? These guys were amazing, and they were so quick, and, and their work was so slick and uh, so inspired and, and so effortless. And I think the less time you spend, this is going to come out wrong, but the less time you spend on a panel and the more time you spend on the overall feeling of the story, um the better you become as a comic book artist. And I love, there's nothing better, there's nothing better than having a book come out and be out on the stands. There's just nothing better than that feeling of, I mean, we get them a week early, it'll be sitting on my doorstep in a little envelope, you know, 10 copies of, of my new book, and it just, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, an amazingly rewarding thing, and it's something that I want to experience 12 or 14 times a year. So... That's great. Uh, no, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, you've been on some really important books, uh, certainly, you know, in, in the last 10 years, things like Flash Rebirth and Green Lantern Rebirth. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you were saying before, too, that um, your, your output used to be, you know, like you said, it, you know, a page a week or so or, or whatever. It was that was it that low? It, it for a was. While? I mean, you know, you were like, "Are you noticing, you know, a, a decline in quality? Or are you taking shortcuts or anything like that?" And the answer yeah. is no. Um, you really do just have to kind of keep your head down and and keep your pen on the paper and just do it and stop thinking so much about it and just do it. But you know, right. I, I would look at you know, say Green Lantern Rebirth or Flash Rebirth, and and what I'm doing now looks better than that. You go back to Batman, Catwoman, Trail of a Gun, which is what I was saying before. That is the extremely insane Ethan Van Skyver who was working way too hard on pages, doing doing work that uh, I think was so detail intensive that I don't know. It was it was just almost uh, pathological. It was just so strange that you know I would I had to draw a toy store a shootout in a toy store and I would actually draw like on the shelves, there would be a million copies of one board game. And I would sit there and draw the labels on every single board game. <laughs> John, that's ill. Like that's, that's mental illness. And I hear you, man. No, no, I, I get what you're saying. And, and yeah, like you said, not worry about the panel, worry more about the page than the panel. I, I understand. And really, even I, when I said, have you developed any shortcuts, I didn't mean in any, uh, to suggest any lack of quality, but just that it does sound like you're, yeah, you're not worrying as much and, and really concentrating on the, the macro storytelling. Let me tell the story. Right, exactly. Please. And then, well, you know, and then there are times also where I'll sit there and I'll, you know, I've had to remind myself, you know, it's like if I'm not going to do this, someone else will. And, yeah. and that's something that, yeah, man. you know, you got as a comic book artist, you have to tell yourself that it's like, look, if I don't finish this book on deadline, somebody else will. And that somebody might not be very good. And those pages might look like slop. And I might look at them and go, I could have done that. 
well, you know, why don't I just do it then? Why don't I just get those pages done, push through, do what you can, sure. do what you have to do to get the book done in and on deadline. That's great. And uh, I've met four deadlines in a row. Fantastic, man. That's great to hear. <laughs> so, are you? I don't want to, you know, because I know there's. Uh, while we're recording this, hmm. uh, it's still a week or so away from WonderCon. And a lot of announcements are going to happen at WonderCon in terms of who's working on what books. We already know that you're work uh, that you did work on Jeff's eighty-page giant that is going to start this new rebirth at DC. Yeah. Um, are you? Can you at least tell me? Are you working on a book that might potentially double ship? Yes. And if so, are there is there a, another art team to meet that kind of double ship requirement, or are they banking issues and it'll be? One story arc that's you know taking place. Say if it's a book is if a book is double shipping, it'll be in two and a half months, and then our team B takes over for the next story. Wouldn't it be amazing if I was doing all of it? Like if I was doing twenty four issues, yeah, man, twenty twenty pages every fourteen or fourteen. No, yeah, okay, so yeah. twenty pages every fourteen days. Yeah, and there's some people who can do that. I, I don't think I'm one of them yet, and I, I wouldn't be able to do that. And then, like, if I were to do that, it would be a conspiracy between me and the writer, like saying, "Look, we're gonna, you know, cut these pages up so that they're the content of the pages is something that's manageable that I could do in in <laughs> two yeah. weeks." Well, we're not doing that. I mean, I, Good. you know, I, I think, um, I think the plan is to uh, do a little bit of both, which is to sort of divvy up. Um, work way ahead and and divvy up story arcs by you know a double creative team or or maybe more i, I don't i don't know i'm not sure how exactly okay. but yeah from from my own standpoint um i'm sharing sharing a book um one of the one of the bi-weekly books okay with another artist and i think the same writer um but yeah, I mean, I would like to get to the point where I'm doing the lion's share of it. I love the idea that um, I love the idea that there's more work available on characters that are great. I mean, if you've seen the list of uh, books that are going to come out post rebirth, they're all winners. They're all great. Um, and it used to be. Well, if you want to draw Batman, we got four Batman titles, and they're all monthly, so there seems to be plenty of Batman work. But there's so many people that want to draw Batman, you know, it, it, there might not be a slot or a situation where you can get in there and draw Batman. Well, now there's more than enough Batman work to go around. There's more than enough Superman, more than enough Wonder Woman. Uh, it's it's just a lot more likely that if you are uh, an artist who is fond of a particular character, that they'll they'll be able to use you. Um, somewhere, um, would you say that the other art team complement? Like, do, do the two art teams do their styles complement each other? Does that matter? I, I don't like. I, I don't know. I, I don't. Okay, I, I'm not sure. I'm not really even worried about it. Like, I, I really, okay. That's why I asked. Does it matter? Sure. Yeah. I'm. I'm like my my thing is just going to be to do the very very best work that I possibly can, and to do superior work at DC Comics. I'm not interested in looking like anyone. I'm not interested in anyone sure. looking at me. I'm interested in the books that I do um, being top of the rung. And, you, you know, if you see my name on a book, uh, you'll get it a lot more frequently, and it will be um, terrific. Hopefully. Terrific. I mean, well, that's if, good air. If you like what I do. If you, if you don't like what I do and, you you know, you like something else, then, then that's Well, not, sure. But, 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, no, you've been around enough. I mean, people people either like or don't like your style. I like your style. Um, I like you. You know. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> but honestly, I that's the thing, man. No, you've even though you've been slow, you've been on some really important books, and I think you achieved what needed to be done for the story. I mean, again, uh, you look at the Rebirth books, prime examples of that, and that's why I was really happy to hear that you were on the eighty-page giant in particular. Um, and maybe you know, more what, things, John. I mean, the, re, the rebirth event is bigger than just that eighty-page giant. So there's a chance okay. that I'm actually involved in other rebirth projects as well. And you know, these are uh, you know these are things that you will learn at WonderCon at the end of the month. Very cool. Yeah. Excellent. Well, you know, and and as we get closer, you know, you're welcome back, and we can talk as as the books start coming out. I imagine we can talk. And John, John, you know, even here, right now, even right this moment. I might be working on something like that right now at my desk. That's fantastic. While we talk. <laughs> That's great. Do you how do you look at the last five years? Um, and you can either, you know, and, and you've kind of said in terms of your own output, and some of it unfortunately we didn't get on uh recorded, mm-hmm. but um no, really, I mean, you know, DC really did need, and I'm saying this, this is my editorial comment. <laughs> DC needed a shakeup. It's it's self-evident. You know, sales are down. Um, I wasn't. I got to be honest, man. Um, and I know you wrote your you drew the first. Uh, didn't you draw that first issue of Convergence with Brainiac? Yeah. I. By the way, I liked that first issue because it was very interesting, and I thought um, Jeff's story, at least what we got in that zero issue, I think it was a zero issue, and um, and your drawing and stuff. No, there really was this kind of interesting dance going on between Brainiac and Superman. But I have to be honest, I wasn't crazy about the event itself, and I liked a lot of some of, of the books that came out after uh, Convergence, and I appreciated the experimentation. Mm-hmm. Um, it concerned me that it was likely because some of these decisions were so bold and experimental that out of the box they may not be hits and might need time to grow, and clearly whatever the needs are of Warner Brothers or DC – for their, you know, whatever uh, number they need to hit to make them, you know, uh, make sense as far as a budget and things like that. Obviously, the numbers weren't hitting, um, and they they kind of, you know, had to scrap it all and decided to go in this rebirth direction. But it just seemed to me that the new Fifty Two, there were some interesting ideas, but honestly, it seemed, especially with a lot of creatives that that left, maybe they weren't really getting the opportunity to tell their stories mm. their way. And I don't know how you would assess like these five years of the new Fifty Two and everything that is leading up to the rebirth. Um, I, I kind of—I'll say this—I felt kind of cold to it, and that's you know about as harsh as I would—I would get about it. I, I felt kind of aloof to, to what was sure what was going. Is indifferent? On. Indifferent a fair word? Yeah. Well, yeah, indifferent. No, because I did care on some level. I just didn't get it. I. I you know, I okay. drew Convergence, and I, at the time, I, I had to have it explained to me a hundred times. What are we doing? What is this? I'm not. I'm not sure what this is. Um, and because DC is is kind of tight and everything, and they they like to keep secrets. You know, the the overall big picture of Convergence was never clear to me, and and I didn't really understand. It was given to me in little, I don't know, like drip by drip, like what I was doing and what I was a, a part of. 
And I just kind of, I said, okay, like, I, I'm just going to do the very best job on this that I can do. And I, I don't really know what came after that. I, I'm not sure what Convergence was, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I, I, I hear people with wildly different, varying opinions about it. And I, I only know what my participation in it was. And, you know, my goal at that time was just to draw Green Lantern. Um, and get back into the Green Lantern universe. And I, I, f I felt like for a second I was getting a chance to draw Superman, which was fun. Sure. Um, but I think right around that time, right when I, when Dan gave me Convergence, and Dan's always really good to me, Dan, Dan DiDio, um, it's just like, we're going to put you on the biggest projects, and, and you know, or we're going to give you a big project, a big project. It's, it's never okay. been, I don't think he ever saw me as a monthly artist. Jeff Johns doesn't really see me as a monthly artist. They just see me as somebody who's going to kick off an event, I think. Mm -hmm. That's, that's sure. something that I appreciate. I really like that reputation. I think that's great, but... Yeah, man. Well, no, first a first issue is really important. He did it with the Sinestro Corps Wars, and, um, you know, I mean, that's the thing. No, and, and, and again, with Convergence, and that's why I was like... Okay, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Let's see. And I, and I had the same reaction that you did in terms of as a reader. I didn't know what the hell convergence was when it was over. And also that double page spread at the end that had all the different uh, heroes and different worlds mm. and what it all represented. That was a great promise. I don't think it came. I don't think what came after convergence fulfilled that promise. I, I was really to me. It was like. Oh, maybe we'll get the Justice Society back. It's taking right. nothing away from the Earth Two creation, because I think that was a fun idea, but not to the point of replacing the Justice Society. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. Listen, I'm, I'm. The, the truth of the matter is, as much as I love DC, I wasn't reading DC as a kid. I loved the, I loved the characters with all my heart. I loved the Super Friends, and I loved the movies. And every now and then, somebody would give me a Superman comic book, and I would, I would look at it, but. When I started reading comic books, the first comic book I actually read was Superman, Man of Steel. And that was age 12. And I went, this is pretty great. I love Superman. But then I started getting really curious about Marvel comics. And I, I read everything Marvel. And I went back. My, my, my expertise on Marvel Silver Age and, you know, uh, everything that came thereafter all the way through the 1980s is Profound. I mean, I, I read everything I could get my hands on. Cool. Um, and then I kind of like discovered girls, and I stopped reading comic books for a little while. <laughs> I did the same thing. Go on. <laughs> and then when I came back to comics, which was when I started to draw them in my twenties, I, I no longer felt that way about Marvel. It was all about DC. I suddenly just realized that the DC characters were more important, and um, and I loved them more. They were more a part of my life. And so, you know, I, I talked to Jeff Johns, and Jeff Johns has been a DC fan, a comic book fan in general, but a DC van, fan especially his entire life. And I, I think he's read almost every comic book. He has just an encyclopedic knowledge of these characters Absolutely. and events. Yep. And I don't. I don't have that. I mean, if Jeff says to me, hey, we're going to do a story about Weather Wizard, I go and I read everything about Weather Wizard that I can find so that I'm knowledgeable enough to do a good version of Weather Wizard in our project. Um, but if he says, hey, you know, remember when DC was kind of going through this phase around 1972 where this and this and this was happening? No, I don't. I don't, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> so largely convergence and, and that, you know, all the different Earths and everything like that is it's lost on me. I don't understand it. And I like to think of myself thus as um, a, com a typical comic book fan. 
um, just your average comic book fan, somebody who really loves Superman and really loves Batman, but has not been reading since 1939. I just have a very basic knowledge of the characters and um, what they mean and what they're supposed to be like and what I want from them always exists in my head a lot more than it does on paper anywhere else. Like the best version of Superman that I've ever seen exists in my dreams and not really on paper. Um, you know, the same with almost every character. Um, and that's, that's kind of why I'm driven to keep doing this is like, I got to do better. I got to do a better Green Lantern. I got to do a better Superman. I, I got to do a better Wonder Woman. I got to get it down on paper. It's, it's so important to me. It's vital, um, that I spend my life getting this right. Um, that's great though, because then you are not beholden to, a Kurt Swan Superman uh, sensibility or any of the great Superman artists to, you know, name one artist and or one character and the, the group of artists that they're known for and stuff. And it's almost like that uh, back to classic film, as we like to talk about and everything, Orson Welles with Citizen Kane. And, and that way you can push things in ways because you're not beholden to, well, no, that's not done with Superman. No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not trying to do Neil Adams. Like, I, 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 right, I respect right. them all. I respect everybody, sure. but I'm not in awe of anybody. I, I, you know, they're all, they're all really neat. Um, but you know, um, I, I don't want to repeat what I've seen before. I'm not trying to live out uh, some sort of childhood dream that I had reading comics. I wish someday I could be Gil Kane. It, it, it's more like, um, you know. Superman, the movie, made me feel a certain way when I was four years old, and it made me realize what superheroes were, um, and the super friends had that same effect on me when I was a child. Now it's atrocious, if you go back and look at it. Oh, yeah. Really bad. But it, but it, it hit me the right <laughs> way when I was a kid. And, and trying to recapture that in a new and fresh way, cycled through my heart and back out onto the paper, is my life's goal. That's all I want to do with my life. And people say, you know, well, there's more money in video games or movies. I, I don't, maybe there is, I don't really care. I'm doing fine. I really just want to spend my life doing this. And um, I tell, I tell Andrea too, it's, she's like, well, are you going to retire? And I'm never going to retire. I'm going to be 88 years old and I'm still going to be drawing comic books. I hope. That's great, man. Um, I hope so too. That would be fantastic. So I'd be, I would be 98 at that time. And then hopefully we'll still do this. <laughs> We'll just hey, it was great. We'll be a little crunchier, <laughs> but I mean, the point of this is, is that yeah, I mean, something like that—that that magnificent um, spread of all the different Earths—means an awful lot to a certain kind of fan, but not really to the average fan, um, which I think is what we're trying to do now. And I say that as just my own personal opinion. I, I feel <laughs> like what we're doing with Rebirth now is going to appeal more to me and to people like me who, who are like, boy, I, you know, I loved, you know, I, I, I loved the super friends or I loved the Batman animated series. That's when Batman, that's when DC comics hit me. Cause I'm a, you know, younger fan in, in 1992, sure. I saw the Batman animated series and it changed my life. Um, you know, that's, that's the kind of feeling I think we're trying to get back now. And that's what rebirth has always been. It's always been, um, when Jeff and I worked on it, it's like, okay, what works? 
you know what yeah that's what yeah i want to hear this because that's that's really one of the reasons why I, I i contacted you and said let's talk about this because yeah it's really when it comes to rebirth it's always been you and jeff so i do want to know what did it you know what what are the elements behind it and what what do you see because much and you know shame on me i was saying that about superman artists hey how about the flash where you know again i think your flash and your re, you know the way you drew flash in rebirth suddenly was this new interpretation of how to show super speed and in fact i love it and i also want to know uh you got to be happy as hell that the cw's flash looks like anything van skyver flash come to life that's cool i i yeah thanks um oh oh, dude all the lightning and everything and just mm -hmm. even those transitions to commercial with the logo i mean it's like you know i know that lightning's always been part of the story but it really was rebirth where it really was just always omnipresent with the flash and maybe because he comes back from the speed force in the story and so he's imbued with the speed force in a way that maybe he wasn't in the pre-crisis on infinite earth's time i don't know he's developing he's grown like he's the, uh, did you he's, think that it was that was that something you guys discussed in terms of well he's back from the speed force so therefore no, it was Jeff's whole idea behind Flash Rebirth was that Barry Allen is the generator of the Speed Force. I mean, he is Speed Force comes directly from him, and so he's he's an engine that produces, you know. Uh, anyway, so I you'd have. To oh, that's good. I, what do you say anyway? That's. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's that, nice of just you know that's a new story for that. <laughs> that says right. Speed Force comes from Allen. From Barry, yeah, from Barry Allen. So. Um, <laughs> But you can, you know, I mean, you have to also remember, you know, it's like the the WB or the CW and and all these things that are coming, um, uh, you know, from DC right now uh, in the movies and and TV. It's Jeff. I mean, you know, Rebirth is has always been Jeff, and you know, it's what these are his ideas and his his feelings, and a lot of times his feelings and my feelings match when we're when we're sort of trying to find. Uh, you know the base, the basic heart and root of these characters, and w- what makes them work. And by the way, you know what makes these characters work is what makes the comic books work. It's what makes them sell. Exactly. What makes them connect exactly. with people. So doing a, a company wide kind of uh, rebirth event, um, I hope uh, will capture that same sort of um, that same sort of feeling. Uh, where you're reading something and you're like, I feel like I'm reading this for the first time again. And uh, this is exactly what's great about Wonder Woman, exactly what's great about Superman. And these are, uh, you know, it's just a, almost like a return to form, I think, is what is what Rebirth is. So, I Very mean, cool. I hope I, I haven't read anything except for what I'm doing. Um, sure. Again, everything seems to be tightly insulated. I'm, I'm privileged to get to be a part of the DC uh, DCU rebirth one shot, uh, which is very kind of them because I don't feel like I'm anywhere near in the class of the other three artists that are working on this. I'm, I'm lumped in with, uh, three of my favorite artists and greats, Ivan and Phil Jimenez and, uh, Gary Frank, who is my favorite working DC artist right now. Now that Brian Boland doesn't do very much. Um, Gary Frank, I think is just, he, I mean, his work makes me cry, and I, I got to see some of his pages uh, today, and I, I, I just told my girlfriend, I was just like, I gotta get used to saying fiance, my fiance. I told Andrea, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I really like, I, I gotta, 
Um, I'm uh, by the way, I'm as we tape this, I'm starting to draw my portion of this book today. So um, I just oh wow yeah okay. <laughs> so, um, I, I it's like wow, I really have to work hard. I really have to be good, and I have to measure up to you know uh, this this terrific superhero artist Gary Frank. I understand, and and really, all four of those, you like you said, and I'll, I'm putting you in there as well. No, it's these are great artists, and you're right. Gary, you know, when Gary and Jeff did their Superman runs, they were incredible. Mm. Uh, you know, I've, Ivan uh, Rice is uh, obviously, you know, great Green Lantern and everything else he's done with Jeff and others, and the same with Phil. Phil is, I mean, you know, Phil, Phil, Infinite Phil's Crisis. incredible. Wonder Woman, oh. yeah, Infinite Crisis and Wonder Woman, and yeah, no, Phil's, and I. And again, I really, uh, I haven't had Gary on the show, and I've talked to Ivan at conventions. Uh, Phil's been on the show, and Phil's, I, I, I really appreciate his point of view on on heroes as well. I think he's just one of those, you know, people that love comics and really gets it, mm. and the, it comes through his work and it comes through his words as well. Yeah, so that definite, like real, like definite, well thought out opinions that come from his heart about these characters, and I, I mean. Uh, he and I speak and, and or have spoken and, and, you know, I don't always agree with, with how he feels about things, but I think we come from our, our, our superhero art comes from the very same place, which is just the very core of our being and almost subconscious. It's like, you know, these, these uh, you know, these characters have meant everything to me since I was four years old. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's like I, it, they really do exist up there. I'm not looking to, um, you know, they really do exist up in my in my mind and my subconscious. And I am not looking to copy anyone. I'm just looking to be absolutely the very best that I can be. And now I I really just have to be John. Say a prayer for me. This I <laughs> this book is going to be read by everyone. This is going to be the the biggest book that DC puts out this year. And the, absolutely the subsequent rebirth. <laughs> books are going to be mind blowing. I mean, I, I I know a few of the creative teams. They're 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 just going to be incredible. Um, mine are, by the way. Mine are really excellent. Mine are really good. I'm really happy with them. Very cool. Are you uh, are you writing at all? No, as well. No, no. I, okay. No, I. You know what? I'm just not a writer. I'm not. Okay. I tried it. I, I don't think I. I'd rather draw anyway. I'd rather. I don't know. Like, I, well, well, art, story, comic storytelling is writing. Yeah, you know. yeah, but I, you know, it's like it's so much better to to get someone's work, to get someone's script, and to actually develop it and more and improve upon it, and 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 sure. then wait to it rather than just let it come from me. I'd rather I'd rather have some sort of starting point, and I just don't know if I have, I haven't studied it. Like I, it's such a writing is, oh, I just have such yeah, man, it's a writers. Craft. Yeah, it's a craft. No, absolutely, man. I don't know. You know, I mean, that's I think a lot of fans kind of. And certainly, I mean, that, that's like none of us can draw or a lot of us can't draw. But some of us probably do read this stuff and go, I could do that. I've got a story. And people have even over the years asked me because of my interest in comics, well, you, you must have some comic ideas. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not a comic book writer. <laughs> I, I And I, you know, I mean, I've entertained thoughts here and there. But it's like I don't have the – like you were just saying about the discipline of being able to, you know, crank out 20 pages a month. You know, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, I mean, and I know that uh, writers can, you know, I think good writers can come up with a script a week or whatever, but I, yeah, that's a, that's a craft and that's a discipline and that's learning your craft well. And I, I think, you know, you've got to put your 10,000 hours in. I'm a Malcolm Gladwell believer. I think he really, 
puts it best, and I always quote that. I think it's true that you have to put your 10,000 hours in before you're going to be any good. It's just, it's not even the, the coming up with the story. It amazes me that the characters, I mean, actually imbuing these characters with opinions and life and motivations and, and yep. making them real. I just feel like if I tried to write, everyone would be me. And, and I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure if I could, yeah, you know, I'm not sure if I could do that. If I could make a character that was so contrary to everything that I believe and still make them sympathetic and, uh, you know, uh, I, I, it really is amazing to me. I admire good writers, and we, we do have a lot of them at DC Comics right now. Um, so I, I'm much, I'm, I am content. In fact, I'm overjoyed to just sit in the artist's seat and get the final say over these stories. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I got to do um, a, a few issues of Sinestro with Cullen Bunn, um, who cool. is... I don't know. Are you reading Cullen Bunn stuff? He's there's a lot of Cullen Bunn to read out there, and I I do like Cullen Bunn. Say <laughs> obviously. You know, I was one of the people that liked his Aquaman, and I was kind of pissed off that so many little shits kicked his <laughs> ass. Of, and I, yeah, shouted him off the book base, or and and him basically say, "Fuck this! I don't need this. I, I've got eight other books that I'm working on. Hmm. I, fine." Yeah, I asked <laughs> no him. Problem. I wanted to work with him. I wanted to do more stuff with him, and I said, "Boy, you know." When I, when I started, uh, when I decided I was going to be a monthly artist, I just I mm-hmm. said my attitude is going to be yes. I'm just going to say yes to everything that's offered to me. I'm going to be very humble and just not turn down anything. So if it's work coming my way, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a great job. I'm going to get it in on time, and I'm going to work towards Green Lantern. Uh, you know, I'm going to try to get as many Lantern projects as I can. I'm going to work towards being the new monthly artist on Hal Jordan, um, and. Uh, Got to do some Sinestro and immediately loved Colin and was just, I'd really like to, what, can we talk about this? It's like, is there any way that like you could just be exclusive to DC and then write Green Lantern and I'll draw it? And he's like, I got all these other creator-owned books and everything already lined up. And I was like, oh, it was the worst news ever. I was like, couldn't you screw over everyone for me, please? <laughs> Isn't there a way you could do that so that we could do great Lantern books together? And um, he's a good man with a lot of honor and, and also just a lot of stories to tell. So unfortunately, yeah. no. But then I got to, um, you know, do this thing with Tom Taylor, though. Green Tom's Man. great, too. Yes. But are, did you read any of my Edge of Oblivion stuff? I know you're busy. And- no, you know, I, Ethan, everything you just said about uh, last year, that's kind of – it left me cold. I want to be a DC fan, but some of these things just didn't interest me. In, I liked Injustice when Tom was writing it. Mm-hmm. I've liked other things that Cullen has run, written. Like I said, I like Cullen's Aquaman and stuff. No, honestly, the last thing of yours I saw was uh, the first issue of Convergence, and I and truly, I thought it. I thought it looked great, and I and I thought I felt really bad for Jeff because I really feel like there were heavy editorial hands on Jeff, and I think um, he executed a book, but I don't really. I wonder how much of it he was really able to write given the size of the event and given the things that came before it and obviously had to be included in it. I just thought it was such a mishmash. And then frankly for, and I forget uh, the character's name that was Brainiacs. Hello. What was it again? Telos. Yeah. Telos. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I, somebody needed to get the memo upstairs that people didn't like uh, convergence. Why is there a Telos book when Telos is the main star of Convergence? Mm. What, 
what were you thinking? And I truly, I mean, that's the thing. It's um, I, I know people who are friends with Jeff and are like, would you want Jeff on? And I'm like, no, because I don't only I don't want to just complain to him. I want to find some common ground of something he's written that I've liked and can really talk to him because I, I well, that's just not my place. I'm not here to you know scold somebody and I wouldn't do that anyway. But I would feel like an ass of being like, yeah, it just didn't work for me. Why did this suck? I mean, and I wouldn't say it that way, right. but just be like, you know, because I even Fraction came on after Fear itself, the Marvel event, and I think the event kind of got away from him. Mm. And I and we were friends enough, and I did say, "What do you think? What do you think went wrong?" And I really I felt bad because I know everyone's intention is to write and draw great stories, but you know, I mean, that's the thing. I just felt like a lot of what was happening in the regular DC universe, most of it, I just didn't care. God, I'm a huge Superman fan, and I got to tell you, um, this story, I thought Greg Pak was doing a great job on action. Yeah, I thought Charles Soule was doing okay on on. Uh, Superman and uh, Wonder Woman, and uh, I thought Batman or Superman Batman was great with or Batman Superman with Greg. I got to tell you, Gene's main story in Superman just did not grab me, and um, I think it was a mistake to re- have Lois reveal Clark's identity in the initial. Here's what's going on, and now let's tell you the story of how we got there. Man, that you took your money shot, you put it up front. And really, the rest of the story is just like, all right, it's okay. <laughs> I, but I, but I mean, really, if you're making a big statement of like you guys did, truly with Green Lantern Rebirth and Flash Rebirth, it better knock our socks off. And if it doesn't, and it's a long story, same thing with Straczynski when Straczynski was going to do his Superman epic and everything. And it's like this isn't a good story, right? And we got to wait for twelve months for this story. Okay, to be over with, yeah. Yeah, and then well, and then he then he abandons the book, and poor Robertson's got to come in and make sense of it. And the same with, and the same with Phil Hester on Wonder Woman. And it's like, holy shit, you just screwed two great characters. And I mean, the, like the domino effect. Poor Dwayne McDuffie. Hey, you got the Justice League, but Superman's on New Krypton. You can't deal with him. And then he's gonna be walking the uh, the planet, or he's gonna be walking across the United States. And no, you can't have Wonder Woman. Um, can I have the Atom? No. Mm-hmm. Can you have? Can I have Hawkman? No. I mean, it's like, uh, but you can have Plastic Man and Zatanna. And mm. I mean, I know I know Jeff loves uh, JLA Detroit, but this is even lower than JLA <laughs> Detroit. <laughs> so I feel bad, man, because honestly, I have been like, like, and I am. I'm genuinely a DC fan. I got to be honest, a lot of the stuff I didn't like. I liked um, Heath Corson did a really fun Bizarro. I thought that was a really fun book. Um I'm trying to think of some of the other new, you know, or the the stuff that came out of Convergence. I I got to be honest. I mean, even even how being this lone Green Lantern and the rest of the the core trapped in another universe. I'm like, all right, it feels like Legion lost from mm-hmm. ten years ago. But all right, I mean, that's you know, was that the book? Were you on Lost Army? Which book were you? No, on? no, I'm on Edge of Oblivion, which follows up Lost Army, and I, you know, I. Listen, again, I, I got this project when my my attitude was say yes to everything. And then I, okay. you know, they, uh, I said, what do you want to do? And I said, anything Green Lantern. And that is my policy. My policy is anything Lantern. Makes sense. I mean, you've, yes. you've created so much. Yeah, you've created so much for the Green Lantern universe. Why not? Yeah. And I, they're, you know, these are my babies. And I, yeah. there are a lot of great new characters. And I, I've mentioned to draw. And I never really got to do much on them. It seems like I did. Like it seems people like, well, you yeah, had a Green Lantern arts, but I, I really didn't draw 
I didn't get to draw Atrocitus. You know, I didn't get to draw any of these characters that I that I created sure. and kind of owned. Right. Yeah, you designed them, but then yeah, had to hand them to other Ivan and, and other people to do the stories. It's sure, agony. It really is painful to do that, and not. I feel like, well, okay, now you know everyone else has kind of done this, and you know, Green Lantern is almost unrecognizable right now. Um, the Green yeah. Lantern book, and all right, is everybody done? Okay, now I'm back. Um, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> y'all done. Y'all, y'all finished. All right, I'm back, and let me let me get a hold of these characters that are doing <laughs> wacky things. Um, that I mean, I, I feel like you know, it's like as somebody who kind of had all and participated in and helped, uh, you know, all the, the the central discussion about what these rings do and, and the effect that they have on their wearers, and you know, all this stuff, and I'm I'm seeing like Guy Gardner. No offense to. I, I don't know who wrote that. Colin might have written this, but you know, I mean, we. I, I feel like I need to be there. We, there's Guy Gardner, and he's wearing a Green Lantern ring and a Red Lantern ring together. Yes. And I'm just saying, you know, that doesn't. I mean, yeah, it, it results in a funny costume, uh, and it might seem cool, but that's just not the way. It's not the rules. The rules don't work that way. That's not the way the rings work. You know, the Green Lantern ring is a tremendous weapon. Um, that requires 100%, 200% of your focus, um, your insistence to make it work. And only a very few people, uh, only a few beings are able to make that ring work. And uh, it really is all you need. And then on the other side, on the other hand, you're wearing a red ring and a red ring, which is rage, red land. Right. Red rings come down and find people who are powerless and especially frustrated and filled, filled with impotent rage. And they come down and they sit before you and say, I know that like so-and-so has happened to you and blah, 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 blah. And you're itching for revenge and there's nothing you can do about it right now. And you're so angry. You're the most rage-filled, vengeful person on this planet right now. Put on this ring. And I will give you the power. And this ring will give you the power to uh, exact revenge. And yeah, it's like like a fire hydrant, almost out of control. Right. Like that kind of now. Yeah, if you are a person who is fundamentally flawed, and you'd have to be. I mean, you really would. Hold on, let me drink this. Sure. <laughs> okay. If you're a person who's fundamentally flawed, you, you might look at that ring and and say, "I'm going to put it on," and then because I want my revenge. And putting on this ring is like giving yourself a case of rabies, um, intergalactic rabies. You're just sure. and you have all this power and you're spitting blood and red vomit and everything out of every pore. <laughs> and suddenly you're the Incredible Hulk and you're able to get the revenge that you want. Um, it's, a, it's a bad idea. It's, it's, to put the two together, yeah. It, well, you can't put the two together because right. one's going to cancel out the other one. And if for some reason, you know, there's a way that, you know, you could put on both, then you've just destroyed the whole concept. I mean, I, I, somebody said, yeah, but if you take a bath in this bloody river, then suddenly you're able to think with the rage ring on. Well, that doesn't make any fucking sense to me. That, I, like, no, I think you'd have to be psychotic and really of two minds at once, and I don't think that's normal. That's correct. And then Tony Bedard <laughs> and I were arguing about this, and he said, so... He's like, yeah, but a book about someone who's just filled with rage is, is boring. It doesn't last long. Where do you go? Then? I'm like, well, you're not a fan of The Incredible Hulk then. 
I, I mean, I am. You know, it's like there, there's nothing. Yeah, me too. There's nothing boring about that that subject, and you can mine it for uh, many, many stories. And even you know, if you want to, you can say, hey, once you know your vengeance is complete and you're no longer and you're sated, you know, the ring leaves you and you're back to normal again. But God help you because of whatever you know mess you've created in your world or in your life because of this red ring. There are consequences, but there are a million stories that come from that. You can't just water this down to the point where guy is casually like, "Hey, what's up, guys?" And he's wearing both <laughs> rings. It's like, I, I, you know, it's like uh, I, I can't, I can't allow that. Like the the co-creator of this stuff in me can't allow that to happen. I really need to get it. I really need to get control of this again. And and it, you know, I, I'm not going to write it. But I do need to just like be involved and and talk to the editors and the writer and just make sure that we get this concept back to where it belongs and, and get it to be shiny and new again. Um, do you have that kind of consultant sort of? Oh, I'm working towards it, John. Okay. I, you know, I you know, it's like I feel like I feel like it should be almost self-evident. It's like. And it might just well, be me being conceited, you know, and it's like I have to check myself and say, stay humble, stay humble. And, and just, you know, you're you're there to draw these comics, you're there to draw. But on the other hand, like, um, yeah, like these ideas mean a whole lot to me because I, I help create them and design them. And, and Well, that's the thing, man. I mean, there are there is a Justice League editor. There is a Superman and Batman editor. Um, I don't think it's out of hand to say that you and Jeff being the architects of what uh, the Lantern Corps became and all the, and the rainbow rings and what they represent that, yeah, that at least, you know, yeah, just again, not to get in somebody else's way of telling their own story or drawing their own story, but uh, to make sure that these rules apply and be like, cause that was what the great thing was with Denny O'Neill mm-hmm. when he was the Batman editor. And then I think Denny was very successful working with writers and artists of very different uh, backgrounds and beliefs and everything else. But when it came down to Batman, Denny knew. And it's like, yeah, you can put Batman in space. It's not a great idea. Right. And I wouldn't do it for very long, but if you need to put him in there, fine. But just know Batman doesn't work when he's in outer space. That's not what Batman is. No. You know, and it's just little shit like that. And just when you just there are rules. And yeah. As yeah. soon as you start to break those rules, then it becomes less interesting. So, so the rule is you put on that red lantern ring, and um, it makes you crazy and powerful and uncontrollable. You know, you you can. So that is the rule. And when you're done, maybe the ring will go away. But at no point are you in your right mind. Like you cannot be in your right mind and be a red lantern. And there's, there's one guy, there's a guy named Atrocitus who can wear that yes. ring and because he's yes. just rage incarnate, he's able to have a conversation with you and still control that ring. But he's still fucking like hateful. Seething. Right. Yeah. Inside, but, he, yeah. but he is Atrocitus and everyone else is just a lunatic. And Well, that's uh, like I remember when Supergirl joined the Red Lantern Corps briefly and I'm like, how does that really? work? Yeah. I mean, it can well, work. It can work, but it has to be. She's not going to be elegant and pretty. She's going to be a mess. I drew her. I drew well, Red Lantern I, Supergirl once, just to, <laughs> as a commission, and she's on my Twitter. If anybody wants to see okay. It. Uh, <laughs> but like, what would Red Lantern Supergirl look like? Well, you know, she looked well, and angry. that was 
that again, not to not to beat the dead horse, but that was kind of my problem with some of the new fifty two, where it was like you've got Superboy, you got Supergirl, and Superman, and they don't like and Superboy and Supergirl, they don't like Superman, mm. and here's a reason why, and it's like, well, okay, that might be interesting for a story, but really as a starting point, and you know, sometimes you'd look up and it's like, okay, it's been two years in this new fifty two. Where is everybody? Yeah. And it's like they're not that far from square one. Yeah. And it, that's – I mean and I, I mean, that goes back to my frustration with the five-issue story arc where it's like, OK, this better be a great story because if it's going to take you almost a half year to tell one story and we're only going to get two stories in change each year, OK, I hope a lot of character progression is happening and a lot of things. And it's like that's why I'm, I'm interested to see what this double shipping looks like oh, with Reaper. It should be great. I mean uh, you know. The, when, I, when it was first explained to me, I, I was over the moon about it. Um, I just thought it was a, a fantastic idea. I love the idea. I mean, because nowadays, look, now with Netflix, and I always compare sure. comics to what's going on in movies and DVD and TV. But now with Netflix coming out with shows where you get an entire season of Netflix exclusive content all in one sitting. Yep. People are really used to getting more story and not having to wait. Yep. So, yep. you know, frankly, I think it's a good I idea to, adjust. To, to give them more story and not let them have to wait, um, especially when it's stuff that they're clamoring for anyway. And they're clamoring for, you know, Batman. Yes. They want this stuff. So let's uh, I, I love the idea of it coming out. It'd be great if it could be weekly, frankly. Agreed. It'd be, Agreed. It'd be great. And and the weekly books that they have tried seem to be working. So Agreed with that as well. The digital weeklies are – and also – we are technically getting less as far – I mean, you know, panel uh, – I forget what they call them. If they're not panels, but um, whatever the digital presentation was versus pages, mm. it would be like 15, you know, double screens or whatever, you know, however it was worked out. Yeah. I never felt like I was cheated each week right. and felt like I got enough of a real chapter that I felt satisfied after reading it and I only had to wait seven days for the next chapter. I mean that's the way it should be. It should be like I a agree TV with you. show. Yeah. So, you know, if we could if we could find a way to make that happen, I mean, you know, I, it's a challenge. Like, I, again, you know, we spoke. Sure. I don't know if this ended up on tape or not, but we spoke about, you know, doing uh, 20 pages in 14 days, you know, every 14 days, 20 pages. And it's like, could I do that? Yeah, I'll bet I could. I'll bet I could. And I'll bet it could be I'll bet it would be pretty good, too. It'd be different. I wouldn't be able to get to do all the noodling that I like to do. Right, right. I mean, I'm sitting here drawing the inside of a spacecraft right now, and I'm noodling it. And I don't – do I need to do this? Do I, you know, there, there are shortcuts that you can take to save time. And it, I just wonder, like, hmm, I wonder if I could actually do a book, two books a month, and just maintain a gigantic story, 24 issues in a year. God, that would be cool. That's awesome. Anybody man. could do it. We can all do. You know, we talk about it. It's like it's a, the only thing that stops us from doing it is our vanity. I mean, you know, we want our books to look a certain way. Sure, we want them to be excellent, and uh, you know, but excellent, in, uh, you know, in terms of uh, detail and background and all these things. But could we tell a story? Could we tell that big of a story? Twenty four issues in a year. I think almost every artist could if they let themselves. I'm for it. I mean, I'd love to see it happen. I think, um, I mean, you know, we were talking before I was recording about guys like Kirby and, or rather we were talking about Kane mm-hmm. and some of the other old timers. I mean, God, Kirby was, you know, four pages a day, three pages a day, whatever needed to get done, he got it done. 
Yeah, John Byrne, I'm sure. I, I remember John Byrne. Yeah, I mean, it's John Byrne. a month at some point. Yes. You know? Bagley certainly seems to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that's the thing. There are a few guys. Mike Norton has been training himself to get faster and had been doing that for a few years. And I don't know where he stands on that now. Um, his main book is the book with Tim Seeley, Revival, but he does still do his online webcomic, Battle Pug, and it seems like he always has a couple other side jobs going. So, yeah, I have to, I should ask Mike how many pages a day he's up to in that. Are you still um, – do you do Centique or are you still doing paper and pen? No, I still do paper and pen. I'm always – you know, it looks peculiar to me. I, I see like perfectly drawn little figures that have obviously been drawn big and then shrunken back into the background. And I don't – it looks strange to me. I guess it looks just as good to the fans, but it's not what I, it's not what I want to do. Not yet. Understood. I just still sit there and do it the traditional way. That's cool. Paper and pens, and I, you know, I get dirty and I see what I can do. And you know, there's there's only one real shot at it, um, excepting whiteout. Some people tell me it's like, oh, it's great if I fuck up a line, I can just you know immediately fix it. And I'm like, mm, I guess that's really cool. It just sounds very commercial, and it doesn't really sound like rock and roll to me. I hear you, man. It's like, That's funny. Yeah, it's like, ah, I can really just, I can fix this in the studio. It's like auto-tuned comics, you know? It's like, oh, God, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but isn't it better to just draw it out and get it? You know, I'm probably being overcritical and Luddite, but I, I you know. Well, no, and I, I mean, I know guys that don't do the, the extremes that you're describing in terms of, but I have seen that. I have seen that kind of thing where it's a, it's a full figure and it's been, you know, obviously reduced. But, uh, you know, I think of, like, my buddy Art Baltazar and what he does with uh, his own books and Tiny Titans and stuff. Mm. And sometimes it is as simple as just like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon where it's just a generic background that he does fill in details to make it look different. Yeah. But it is a, sp- it is a, a, a step saver to, to do it that way. And I always go back to a trip back from San Diego and uh, sitting in an air, uh, airplane aisle uh, with Mike Norton and Tim Seeley and Norton playing with the Centic. And at the time, he was drawing the Billy Batson and the Magic of Shazam comic for Art and Franco's uh, scripts. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was just amazing watching him work on a panel and then shrink it down to where it needs to be on the page and then work on the next panel and stuff. And it was like, wow, that's crazy. How do you feel about it? Do so you think it's pretty good? I think in the right hands, and I think, you know, again, I, as long as it doesn't uh, – I've seen artists that have done it, and they haven't lost their style in making the transition. Uh, Stuart Immerman had a – I forget what kind of t- – it wasn't a Centique. I forget he was what he was drawing on, and he was showing me. And Stuart is crazy, and I love this about him, that every project he will just challenge himself and try and do a different art style. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, so, but you know, it's yeah. I think it's idiosyncratic. I think some people will use it and do the extremes that you were describing, and others will do it with you know, just again, it's a little time saver and the ease of you know correcting a line when it's digital versus you know pen and ink or pen and paper. I, I am being a lot. I, I admit it. I really. Yeah. Am. I just love what I do. I wake up every morning and I'm excited about what I do, and I'm not looking at it yet as you know commercial art, like a like a process that. I'm, You're not making sausage, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't look at. I, I, I know what I'm going to draw the next morning. I already read the page ahead of time and thought about it in my head, and then I get up and I just feel 
everything feels different now. I can't even describe That's it. Great. This is, I'm, I'm actually just, I, I don't want to change anything. I want to do this and perfect it. And I'm telling you, this year, John, this is my year. That's excellent. This man. is the year. I haven't felt like this since 2010. I mean, this is the year where I do the best comics of my career. And many of them. Many of them. And everyone will say, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's excellent. We forgot. No, that's cool. One la- and clearly, as you've discussed... You you know you got divorced. You you've got a, a new fiance, and uh, you told me when well, we thought we were recording, you got a baby on the way. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. That's wonderful. And your son is is adjusted in the in the new surroundings as well. So yeah, I mean you know that's great that you know I mean your personal life can't affect your professional life sometimes. I mean it's it's pretty obvious. Everybody goes through that. I think so. I, I think that's wonderful that you're in a you're in a good place personally and and. That's great that it looks like uh, you're about to uh, kick ass professionally. Oh, so John, wonderful. you're gonna love it. We're gonna make you love DC Comics again. I, I hey man, I swear to you, honestly, because <laughs> I know, because I no, you know, honestly, I had Tom King on a few weeks ago, he's a and he, I love him, and I, he's a great guy. He's just a good, and it, his and it, there's a good book that I really enjoyed was Tim and uh, Tom, Tim Seeley and Tom King doing Grace. Yeah, that was book. a great book, yeah. excellent book, and I've really enjoyed. Jeff's, I mean, that's the thing. Jeff's still doing great work. Scott Snyder's still doing great work. So, yeah, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, there's a lot of DC books. Max Landis, I love that uh, Superman American Alien miniseries. I haven't read that yet. I think it's fun. Yeah. I really think it's fun. All right, all right. I got it sitting here. I've been meaning to get to it. So that's good, and I and now I can actually be positive about a few recent DC books that I've really enjoyed. But, no, honestly, when Jeff made the video... I really was. Thank God. It's like it's like a soap opera, and an old hero that you used to love suddenly comes through the door, and it's like, oh, there's Luke Spencer. I'm here to now. General Hospital is going to be good again for a while. Right. right. <laughs> well, promise me you'll read this stuff again. Oh, absolutely. Jaded. I mean, the thing. Oh no, I promise you. Yeah, this is all going to be. Um, I, I mean, I think I think this is going to be a shot in the arm to anyone who's jaded about DC Comics and. You know, I'm, no, I'm so excited to be a part of it. I, I love, I think what I love most about what I'm doing is just, you know, there's the, st- I, I, you get to, in the Rebirth books, you get to take the status quo and then f- fix it. <laughs> it's just Good. so much fun. It's so Good. much fun. We did that with the first Green Lantern Rebirth too, where it's like, you know, Guy Gardner Warrior, which was of its time, and we got to yes. sort of make him into Guy Gardner again, like the classic yes. Guy Gardner. And it was just, it was a joy to get to draw both of those, um, both versions, and just and just feel it kind of slipping back into where it was supposed to be again. And I felt that way with Flash Rebirth, and it was great to see Jay and Barry and Wally and Bart, all four of them, yeah. coexist, and everything made sense, and you didn't feel like... Well, now, wait a minute. Who's this? And, what? and no, it's fine. The Legion of Three Worlds, the same thing. It was like, thank God, there's the Legion. Oh, my God. I've missed you guys. And, that you know, honestly, that's – no, I'm, I am I believe me, man. I'm rooting for this to work. I miss reading DC, and I enjoy these characters. I enjoy the legacy. I enjoy the family idea behind DC. I, I It, it really kind of rubbed me wrong when – 
everybody seemed to not like each other. The Titans didn't seem to like the their 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 mentors. Yeah. The uh, you know the uh, the same thing with um, and now I'm blanking. Um, uh, you know, well, I guess that's a good enough example. I mean, you know, it's negativity. Just, well, like I was just saying, Superboy and Supergirl not liking Superman. Yeah, yeah it was just because they got to be rebels and they got to be they got to be edgy and they got to be. On the, it's like no, that's Batman. And by the way, Batman – and it was great because with all that happening, Batman had a huge, like, family thing going on. And, yeah, there was a moment where the family didn't trust him. Mm-hmm. But it's just like – you know, it, that's the thing. It just seemed like everybody else was being told, no, you got to write and draw this way. And then you ha- you would have Jeff and you would have Scott that really understood their characters. And same with Jeff with Justice League. And it's like, no, let them let them do this right. I also – by the way, I really like um, Brian Hitch's uh, JLA. Oh, it's great. Really like Brian Hitch's JLA. That's the no offense to Jeff, but honestly, I was enjoying that more because it's like, oh, that's cool having Rao come back <laughs> and, and be the god that you all want. You know that he is healing people, and you know he's right. taking care of the poor and the hungry. And it's like, and Superman's like, uh, it seems like Rao. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so that was cool, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look, it's it's. It's all going to get better, and I'm really, really excited. I, I, you know, just knowing knowing what I know. Excellent, man. It well, that's feels like a homecoming. A... It's like you know, these are our friends, and we missed them, right? And they're all coming home. So very cool. All right, good deal, man. Well, then that gives me hope, and you know, we're days away from uh, the announcements that'll be coming at WonderCon, uh-huh. and, and we'll learn more then. Well, um, and now we did do a lot of movie talk at the beginning, but it didn't get recorded. But I do still have other questions I can ask you, fresh questions, because there's some of these digital channels that are out there. Um, I don't know if you're getting them in your area or not. Do you get Decades, a CBS digital channel? No. Because um, they're showing Dick Cavett a lot. <laughs> really? They're great. Dick they're Cavett great. episodes? No, I have – you know what I really like to, to watch? Like I, even more brainless, like – uh, than anything that's on TV right now. Even letting CNN or Fox News run all day when you're drawing, that's bad. But there's a yes. station here called Buzzer. B-U-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Buzzer. Fantastic, oh, yes. My God, it's great. It's great. It's just all game shows. And you don't realize how how good they feel to watch until you just let them run for a little while. And you're like, I remember coming home and watching Family Feud after school. Sure. With Richard Dawson. And, you know, here it is. I mean, this all this old stuff back on TV again. It's fantastic. I mean, that's really like I can let I can let buzzer play pretty much all day long. <laughs> well, it's really great overnight because they're showing not only what's my line, but to tell the truth. And I've got, I've a, got secret. a secret. Yeah, I have my DVR taping them all the time. They're they're amazing. And it's just <laughs> Betsy Palmer, the mom from Friday the 13th, a, a is... beautiful young woman. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Johnny Carson as a game show panelist. And Jack Parr. And Jack Parr, and um, there was one where it was, I forget which, because Bud Collier, the voice of, the radio voice of Superman, and the cartoon Superman from the 60s, um, was, I want to say, I've got a secret. Uh, to tell the truth. And, well, thank you, see, yeah, that's good, you see, you'll, you'll correct me. Uh, but there was one episode where he wasn't, or one or two, where he was sick or whatever, and Merv Griffin was the MC, oh, and John's one of the panelists. You're kidding. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, stuff like that. Or Henry Morgan was this great radio satirist, mm. and, he, and he's on, I want to save it to tell the truth, or I've got a secret. I think it's I've got a secret. He's on I've got a secret, and, you know, Harry Morgan, 
I've had a bad feeling about it. I, I don't know what that guy was all about. But again, I'm a big What's My Line fan. I love What's My Line. Yes. And he came on as a guest panelist one time. And really, you know, at this point, and this was like the late, late 50s. So the show had been on and running and it was the biggest show and a game show. Sunday night, everybody dressed formally, tuxes and evening gowns. Yes. Yeah. And, and the, you know, it's like the regulars just had their whole thing. And um, so, you know, they're introducing each other on the show in the beginning. And right. Harry Morgan says, hey, I'm Harry Morgan. And this over here is Bennett Surf, And Bennett Surf goes, you know, it's funny. I, I'm the next person I'm going to introduce, blah, 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 blah. And Harry Morgan says to him, um, he's like, so how long is this show, Bennett? And Bennett's <laughs> like, pardon me? And wow. like, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll finish. And he's like, I was hoping you would. Wow. And Bennett goes, uh, never mind, I'm just going to introduce John Charles Daly. And John comes out and gives gives Henry, like, the worst look. And I remember that being like, you can find that on YouTube. There's a whole, like, video of the most uncomfortable moments of what's my line, the weirdest <laughs> moments. And that's one of them. And I remember going, what in the world went on to cause that? That's one of those things that you just, you're seeing the end result of something. Something bad happened. And I just thought, this guy, Henry's a butthole. Henry Morgan, not to be confused with Colonel Potter from MASH, Harry was the, which is, yeah, that's Harry Morgan. That's right. Harry Morgan. I, okay, yeah. Don't want to Henry confused. was this radio satirist, and he did. He just, and I and I see it in radio now, there are just really talented, or Keith Olbermann, yeah. just really talented people that can't work with management and don't like sponsors. And this is in the era where the sponsor owned the shows. And he, he was even sponsored by Lifesavers and said... He was going to start selling the the piece of candy that they knock out to make the hole, and he was going to call them Morgan Mint Middles. Now that's really funny, it, and that's what I'm saying. He is really, really funny. But I really feel like radio was his best medium, and by the time of television, he really wasn't happy being there. Yeah. And would like, and because I would see it occasionally too on I've Got a Secret, right? Like where he's just kind of cantankerous and just not How? cooperative. Yeah. So my favorite show on there, though, is from the 70s, Tattletales. Oh, my God. Because, yeah. Because all the celebrities on there and their wives and um, you get weird things like Elaine Joyce and Bobby Van. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about Elaine Joyce. What about Elaine Joyce? Who is that woman? I, I know I've watched that show and, you know, both of those people are kind of past their prime. They're sort of forgotten, right? I mean, who were they? Well, they, Bobby Van was a musical song and dance man. He literally came at the very end in the 50s of the era of big Hollywood musicals. Mm. But would still do dinner theater, would still do live theater in the 60s and 70s and travel around because he was really talented. And Elaine Joyce, his wife, she was kind of, you know, uh, typical, a very attractive, ditzy blonde kind of, you know, uh, stereotyped character. But what I find fascinating about her is J.D. Salinger would watch these game shows, and poor Bobby Van got um, died of like an aneurysm or something really, really sudden and tragic. Mm. And for a while, Lane Joyce would continue to do game shows, you know, without him. Mm. And Jay Salinger just kind of found himself attracted to Elaine Joyce, and it's so weird, but very cryptically, like summoned Elaine Joyce of like, "Get me that girl." Really? <laughs> they spent like eight years dating and kind of being together. That's and it's just weird. And there she is just being silly on Match Game or on Tattletales with Burke Convy. And it's that or Gary Crosby 
Bing Crosby's one of Bing Crosby's sons yeah. from his marriage, yeah. and probably the most successful Crosby son before uh, Crosby child before uh, the daughter that uh, was on Dallas that shot Jr. Yeah. Kristen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was this guy Gary Crosby had his own little pop band in the yes. in the nineteen sixties with um, boy another it was it Desi Arnaz Jr. And uh and Dino Desi and Billy. There you go. Was he really? Yeah. Wow. I think so. Yeah, Am I wrong about that? Was he Billy? No, Billy. I don't think so. Because yeah, it was Dino Desi and Billy. Okay. And that was D Martin Jr. and Desi Ar- and Desi Arnaz Jr. and I forget who Billy was, but it wasn't a Crosby. Oh, all right. I'm wrong. Never mind. But but no, Gary Crosby in the '60s. He was on uh, the Bill Dana show, Jose Jimenez. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, good enough, good enough kind of supporting actor on sitcoms and, you know, would do the occasional love boat or whatever the TV movie of the week kind of equivalent. But yes, so he was kind of hanging on and um, yeah, you just or, you know, Shatner and one of his wives or you just see these like amazing celebrities, Chad Everett from Medical Center and one of his wives. (laughs) (laughs) And none of them are anything anymore except for Shatner. Uh, It's very, very strange. Um, Well, that's the Exactly, these forgotten celebrities. Yeah. Oh, God. Have you seen the match game? Mary Wicks, the wonderful supporting Golden Age of Movies kind of character actress. Wow. That always was kind of a, kind of a you know, tall, kind of plain-looking woman. I just saw an Abbott and Costello movie with her called Who Done It? And she's on and the match game? She was on match game. Oh, my God. And I was just shocked. I'm like, oh, my God, look at Mary Wicks. Like, that's her and Ethel Merman. Did a few match games. I love I love seeing these people who, I mean, you know, it's like they were MGM and then they end up on game shows. So they end up yep. doing supporting roles on t- random TV shows. Like one of my one of my favorite horror movies from, you know, that era from the late 50s, early 60s, like the Ed Wood era, um, you know, Virginia Leaf, the brain that wouldn't die. And it's like yes. I saw her on an episode of Starsky and Hutch and I was like, Wow. That's Jane in the pan. And she's playing a woman whose husband is secretly gay and she's and he killed himself or something like that. And it was very, very profound. And I'm just like, my God, it's Jan in the pan from the brain that wouldn't die at the end of her career. That's, you know, Burke's Law was like that, too. Me TV was showing it like two or three in the morning. This uh, it's the guy who played Bat Masterson. And now I'm blank. Gene Barrett. Yeah. And Burke's Law, he is a. He is a captain in the police, but he's also a millionaire. So he shows up at crime scenes in a Rolls Royce and has a houseboy and who's also his chauffeur. Um, but like the guest stars, you get like Ricardo Montalban in the mid-60s, and he is this uh, uh, kind of bar, uh, barbell, you know, weight, weight training kind of in muscle man yeah. and has the bod for it. Looks great. But another one was um, – not Lorraine Tuttle, who was in um, Mary Astor from the Maltese Falcon. Oh, my God, yeah. Or Elizabeth Scott, another great kind of uh, film noir actress. And she did a she did a Burke's Law. And it's just, you know, it's, it's from like, it's an Aaron Spelling, a very early Aaron Spelling produced show from the mid-60s. And yeah, you, I mean, and Kojak is like that. Miami Vice is like that for if you want... Uh, if you're sick of me <laughs> talking about old actors and want more, like Liam Neeson is on a Miami Vice when he's really young. <laughs> you know, Kojak alone before, like three years before Rocky, 
Stallone is in a Kodiak. I just wonder, like, like when you get Golden Age actresses who are appearing on, like, bad 70s TV shows, like, like, like suddenly there's Macmillan and wife, and you're just like, oh, my God, like, what are you doing? But, you know, it's like, I wonder if these people, if, if they're just bored and just looking for something to do, and so they go, oh, I'm going to appear on a TV show. You know, I saw Tippi Hedren, and I was like, are you going to ever act again? She's just like, well, I don't know if something, the right thing comes around. And at the time, Desperate Housewives was popular. And I was like, you should go on Desperate Housewives for an episode. That's true. You know what I mean? Like, how great would that be to see, you know, Tippi Hedren in something again after? Well, you need you need a a great uh, director or casting director, I guess, you know, or producer in the case of television to think along those lines. I mean, that's the great thing about Tarantino. Think of all all the great careers that he revived. Robert Forster, perfect example. Yeah. You know, such a great actor and really was just like, you know, making like like Tarantino said, maniac cop four and crap like that until Tarantino's like, no, this guy's good. We need him back. Let's put him in Jackie Brown. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and he's, and he's had a nice career for the last 25 years because of it. And I think uh, another thing that I've discovered because uh, we have a radio person in Chicago, uh, that passed away in the early 2000s, Studs Terkel. Mm. And, and he used to have a great interview show. And a lot of his uh, interviews are on that archive.org. And I've heard him talk to, from the past, uh, interviews with guys like Chester Morris, who was Boston Blackie, and Dick Tracy in the early movies. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to them in the early 60s. And, you know, theater, live theater really did continue up through the very late 70s, and maybe even in some cases the early 80s. And now we're getting a bit of a revival of that. At least we are in Chicago. And I do think there are more national touring companies, not just of musicals, but of dramas and comedies as well. And I really think in the 70s, a lot of, uh, because it sounded like that's what Chester Morris was doing, he was touring in a stage version of Advise and Consent. I know about that. And so, you know, you hear about productions like that. I just saw Johnny Carson. Do you have Antenna TV? I think so, yeah. Antenna TV is running old Carson shows, and I, I love them especially on the weekends because that's when they run the 90-minute shows from the 70s. Mm. And there was one from 1973 that I just watched last le- weekend, and Ricardo Montalban was on, <laughs> and he had just done The King and I and done like regional theater of The King and I. It wasn't Broadway, and he was about to do a production of South Pacific. Mm. And he even said... I've got to do the Enzio Pinza, you know, uh, role, uh, some enchanted evening and that stuff. And he's like, I don't sing. I mean, he's being very candid. And he said it really was, you know, kind of an interesting challenge to get a performance ready for the stage. And, and knowing that I certainly cannot hit the notes that Enzio Pinza and then some of these other great actors and singers, you know, that have had the role and stuff. And so, yeah, I think that's how they survived. And they were, I know Sid Caesar was doing. Last of the Red Hot Lovers in the seventies, and um, hmm. oh, I forget uh, Plaza Suite. I, I saw an interview. I, I found an interview that he had done in the early seventies, and he was in town doing a production of Plaza Suite. So yeah, I think that's how they were surviving. And you know, or there's those heartbreaking stories of, especially in the in the very early age of uh, television in the in the late forties and fifties, when some of these actors from from film would come and do live TV mm-hmm. and just just really sad stories of like, you know, it was just too fast and they couldn't everything you see in my favorite year and Peter O'Toole struggling and saying, I'm not an actor, I'm a movie star. Yeah. And, you know, he, he can't keep up with the frenetic pace of live TV and reading from cue cards and 
you know, neat stuff. And that was, yeah, what a struggle. I, I, again, I just, I could eat this stuff up. I absolutely, absolutely live. I think I live in the 1940s and 50s in terms of entertainment. It's just, I just bought a, an autograph book, by the way, from eBay. And it, it's, I think, some woman who was a singer, a, a lounge saloon singer in the 1940s and 50s and paging through it and there's some great names in there including a lot of uh, the guy who played uh, commissioner gordon on the batman tv show is in there neil neil hamilton neil hamilton's sure. in there and then so i turn the page and it's frank sinatra wow it's like oh my god that's so great did you see the alex gibney documentary that hbo had of sinatra uh, all or nothing at all yeah Yes. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was amazing. Well, that's what I'm looking for, too. And that's why, beyond the films themselves, I keep looking for interviews from that era. Because, you know, Lucille Ball uh, in the 60s on CBS radio had this amazing celebrity interview show. And and we were just talking about Doris Day. Mm. Uh, One interview in particular was Doris Day. And it was mid-60s. And she's still making movies. How do you do it? How do you keep up this pace? My God, you've been doing this for so long, Doris. And really well, Lucy, I really think you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I'm going to quit in 1968 and never do another movie again. Yeah, and then and then the sad thing with Doris was, you know, she she finds out she's bankrupt yeah. and has to do that terrible TV show from the seven. That show hurts to watch, man. Oh, it's really bad. I have it all. Tried like I'm a loyal Doris Day fan, so I've tried to like get through it, and it's just, whew, it's real bad. Um, if you have diabetes, avoid it because the sat- the sugar is just way overboard. Yeah, no, and, over- and it's overboard. stupid too. It's not just yes. saccharine; it's stupid. And so many shows in the 1970s. I don't know what was going on in the 70s. I mean, beyond the obvious drug use, but. <laughs> Everything is so stupid. You go from like you go from the nineteen fifties and sixties when television seemed to be kind of even the dumb shows were kind of clever and interesting to the seventies when everything got real bad. And I mean, you don't uh, like the you don't like the Mary Tyler Moore shows? No, like no, but I I do, I do. I think that I like Jim Brooks. I like a lot uh, Alan Burns. I like a lot of those writers. And I think they wrote really funny shows. There, but there are ridiculously insipid shows like Doris Day, and another one, unfortunately. And it, there are some of them on YouTube. Jimmy Stewart did a horrible sitcom. Did he really? Horrible sit. Yes, was and it was on NBC. And he was like a a professor at like this nice, quaint little university. And they just had domestic problems and just silly problems at school. And you watch this show, and just it's. <laughs> You know, Gary Marshall, this one interview he does, he's like, you know, TV, when it started, they had all these guys that could write story, Mm. but they couldn't write funny. So they got the nightclub writers to come in and they taught us how to write story. But we still knew how to do funny. Mm. And that's what the problem is. It's like Mm. there are things that are supposed to be jokes in this Jimmy Stewart show that are always in that cute. Oh, Grant, the grandson just said something adorable. (laughs) And it's like. It's crap. It hurts to watch, man. And also, at the end of the show, he'll turn to the camera like George Burns, but, wow, I hope you enjoyed uh, t- tonight's uh, little adventure. Oh, no. We'll see you next week. <laughs> it's just horrible, man. Oh, no. Really funny shit. So, yeah, that's there you go, kids. There's a good homework assignment. Go scan. Look for the Jimmy Stewart show from the 70s. Uh, and you'll only be able to handle about five minutes. 
But there's one. There's an episode where Vincent Price plays himself, and I'm coming through town with my art my art collection. Yeah. What what's up with him and his art collection? Suddenly, all through like the he was trying to, I guess, get away. Oh, from... that was. Go ahead, and I'll tell you. Okay, he's trying to get away from being a ghoul and kind of like, hey, I'm I'm a kind of art collector. I'm an intellectual, and uh, what was that? He made a big point of that. The, the, the actually the deal was he really was even like back in the forties collecting fine art mm-hmm. and Sears when Sears was the big department store that we all shopped at and literally would be excited when the Christmas catalog would come out and all the toys were in there as a kid. But Sears had this art uh, deal that you could literally purchase fine art and like rare prints of masters and Picassos and things like that. Put them on your Sears credit card and actually with time payments own fine art. And they had Price curate – the collection that, that Sears ended up buying and selling. <gasps> and, and also he really went around the country and would go to newer cities like in the southwest and stuff and and, and really help uh, curate new museum collections of not only classic art but also this is wonderful native art and this is why it's great. And he really was a legitimate art expert. And, and it's – Really, like I've seen, and granted, it came from his daughter Victoria, but I've seen her do her tribute to her father show, and I mean, I was aware of the Vincent Price collection when I was a kid as well, and it is—it's cool. I mean, so that's—I love Vincent Price, man. I mean, and I, I'll make fun of the voice and stuff, and yeah, he, the great thing is, man, he knew he was like being campy, and he was just having a blast, <laughs> and he loved—he loved making those those uh, movies for uh, AIP and. Um, you know the one, especially the ones that he ended up doing uh, in London and stuff in the in the early seventies that got even a little more gross and a little crazier. Like uh, was a Carnival of Blood. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Doctor Fives. Actually, I just heard a, a Joseph Cotton interview. Yeah. And he was talking about the first Doctor Fives movie, and the interviewer was like, "Oh my God, you're doing schlock." He's like, "No, it's a lot of fun." And he goes, "Really? It's it's great." He goes, "It's a it's a really funny script." And Vincent and I are having a blast. And he's like, honestly, he goes, I'm really proud of it. He goes, it's a, it's a very entertaining movie. And I, you know, he was like, no, sorry, it's not shit. <laughs> he goes, I like what on, though. I mean, that, that just seems like like everyone in the 70s, in the early 70s, all these great stars like Joan Crawford and uh, Olivia de Havilland, they're all doing horror movies. Right. I mean, were they just messing around? Well, and then the Omen movies all had like a list casts as well. Gregory Peck and Lee Remick. My God, my child is the child of Satan. (laughs) I love doing those. Uh, No, honestly, man, the problem is, and it's you know, um, it's Deborah Winger or rather um, Roseanne Arquette. Yeah. In the nineties, I think, or in the early two thousands, did a documentary called "Searching for Deborah Winger." And it was all about, isn't it terrible, Hollywood ageism, and when you get older, you can't be the ingenue anymore, obviously, but it's tough to get good dramatic roles. Well, this is this was happening as early as, I think, when the silent stars had to face the fact that they were getting older. And Chester Morris, in that Studs Terkel interview, was really eloquent about it and saying, hey, I had my time as a leading man, and it was great. I'm glad I can still act, and now I'm a character actor, and now I have to play the grandfather or the elder statesman, mm-hmm. or the evil businessman and stuff. And it's like, those are the, you know, that's fine. I'm okay with that. 
And I really do think, well, and I know in the 60s that Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was such a hit. And there were so many attempts to recapture that with the subsequent movies like with Joan Crawford. Yeah, Trog, okay. But what was came, the, but that's Joan Crawford, uh, her last movie. That's what Joan Crawford did. It, yeah, so I think uh, if you've ever seen Bedlam Trog. Like, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, wasn't it called Bedlam, like William Castle's movie with Joan Crawford, where she's like uh, crazy and like still trying to look young, but Ooh. is like an axe murderer or something like that. I don't remember, but she ends up like almost killing like the cute young woman that's stealing all her thunder and everything. Oh, I haven't seen that one. The the very last thing I saw Joan Crawford in was a TV show called Night Gallery. And, yes. Uh, Steven Spielberg's first, I think, directorial debut was uh, that's right. Yeah. Joan Crawford uh, episode, which was actually very, very good. It's excellent. Yeah, man. It's the pilot for the series. Yeah. One of the stories of the pilot for the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know what she did after that, but everything seemed to be horror. Like, And by the way, Richard Burton, didn't he do an Omen sequel or was that an Exorcist sequel? I think it was an, it was the Exorcist sequel because the Omen only had the three movies. Okay. It just seemed like they were getting like, these A-list, like huge stars oh, yeah. who were just, you know, boys from Brazil had everybody in it all, you know. <laughs> well, that was a successful novel. Right, and that really, I think, was an A picture. Was it? And not, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I'm old enough. I, I sadly, again, I can tell you. I mean, I was 12 <laughs> or something at the time, but I do remember, or even maybe nine at the time, but I do remember it, and I do know later I watched it um, in the late 70s and stuff. So yeah, that was considered an A picture. I mean, that's the thing. Well, even The Omen was considered an A picture. Well, hell yeah, it was, and it was. It you still know. was an A picture. Sure. No, it's a great movie. Absolutely, it's a great movie. I'm interested in this Exorcist uh, TV series that they've got in production. Well, you know what? The Bates Motel was really good. I don't know if you're... I like it, too. I do like it. So, I mean, yeah. I think that might be the model for what they're doing. And, and John, guess what? Are you there? Yeah, so I'm still here. Can you hear me? Yeah. I just finished my page. boy. Oh, well, then you're ready for bed, aren't you? Yes, I am. Isn't that uh, magnificent well, that we experienced that together? That's what my day is now. It's finishing a page, going to bed, and just compiling a comic book for you to read. And I hope you do read it. Um, I intend to, man. No, no, no. Honestly, uh, you you have my attention. I certainly will be there for that 80-page uh, rebirth giant that's uh, starting this whole DC rebirth. And really, I'm looking forward to the announcements and hearing what you're doing. And, yeah, let's – I mean, I, thanks, man. I know we've been talking for, like, almost two hours some, unfortunately, only about a 90 minutes of it got recorded. But, <laughs> but no, uh, in a few months when the books are up and running, uh, please come back and uh, we'll, we'll see how things are going with the DC Rebirth and Ethan Van Skyver. And maybe we'll do a little singing next time. Thank you. Excellent. And that's good. Yeah, indeed. I'm, uh, I, you know, I, I felt, always felt very Dick Cavett-like when you'd break out into song. <laughs> and, and, we'd have, and we'd have, especially the live ones we did at uh, the Cincinnati convention and, and Chicago, too. Can I be your personal Groucho? That'd be, you know, we used to make movies, <laughs> motion pictures, because they were pictures in motion. <laughs> I love when Gilbert Godfrey does that stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> We called it the 30s because <laughs> it was the decade after the 20s. <laughs> so therefore, it was the 30s, you see. And that's exactly what he sounded like. No, we just need a Truman Capote character to sit next to me and be irritated. But I'll, that might be the audience. Thank you so much for having me on Word Balloon again. It's been years, and wow, I missed you. Likewise, man. And no, you'll you come back in a few months, and uh, we'll do it again. That sounds beautiful. Thanks, John.
Boom, man. That's it. You're good. Go to bed. <laughs> All right. Good night, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Wrapping things up on today's Word Balloon with uh, really uh, an internet legend, and that is Mr. Skin. 1999 is when Mr. Skin started. In August, it'll be 17 years, as he says. And uh, this is a guy who came from Chicago, and um, I certainly was aware of the website back in its early days, and uh, a lot of my friends would have him on their radio shows here in Chicago. And I just got to meet the guy a month or two ago, and it was very sweet. He remembered me from uh, my sports radio days at the score in Chicago. And uh, I'm like, hey, want to come on Word Balloon? Because, honestly, I-, I love his show. I'm glad that, uh, and it is a show now, because he does videos at his website. I remember when it was just the JPEGs uh, back on a very crude website, kind of similar to my current design of WordBalloon.com. But, uh, really, it was such a great time to to meet Mr. Skin and pick his brain, because the guy's doing something right. He's one of these uh, internet uh, you know, superstars that uh, started very early and hasn't gone away. So uh, a pleasure to meet Mr. Skin and introduce him to the Word Balloon audience now. I am thrilled to welcome Mr. Skin to my podcast, Word Balloon. Skin, it's a pleasure. How you doing, man? Hey, John, how's it going, my man? <laughs> it's going great. Long-time admirer, sir. I uh, I remember when... Uh, I Actually, I don't know the year that Mr. Skin started. What was the... What was the it was uh, 1999, and uh, in August... I'll have done this for 17 years, and quite frankly, it's funny because when I started it, I truly, I was, you know, I was working at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and uh, about six months before I launched it, I quit to give this a shot, and I was just hoping to make a little extra money, and then I'd figure I'd find a real full-time gig (laughs) after that, but here we are almost 17 years later. I have uh, 45 employees, and uh, 2015 was our best year ever, and it's just, it's an incredible story because... Believe me, I didn't plan any of this. It just kind of happened. You defy the odds. I mean, really, man, this yeah. is amazing. Uh, you know, you came in in that Internet revolution and everything, and beyond survived, you've thrived. That's fantastic, man. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, when I started, you know, Google, YouTube, Facebook, none of those websites even existed. <laughs> and it's it's incredible that we're still around, but also incredible that we're doing better and better every year. And that, that to me, is the, the fun thing. You've evolved too. I mean, it's you know, I remember oh, yeah. when it was first just JPEGs or whatever the mm-hmm. uh, the photos were that you used to post and stuff like that. And now you do these full fledged uh, video, you know, segments. Oh yeah, when I started, when I start, <coughs> excuse me, when I started the website, um, most of the content was from my Betamax or videotape collection. So very grainy pictures and crappy videotapes back in 1999. But at the time. Because of what the content was, it seems so cutting edge. Now, uh, I've always been big on the importance of technology, and one not just with developers and designers, but also just with our content. And when most movies were released on DVD in the early 2000s, um, we swapped out all the, the crappy video pics and clips to make it DVD. And then about seven or eight years ago, um, Blu-ray became really popular, so we even though we had hundreds of thousands of pics and clips, we uh, you know, went with that because it has six times the resolution of, of DVD. And sure. now you've got 4K and all this coming out, so we're going to keep at it and always want... What fun is nudity if you can't see it perfectly? So. Damn, damn straight. And, I, and yeah. I, um, the Anatomy Awards uh, wrapped up, and you're, you're, or you've been announcing them. I know I've been following on Twitter in that. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we did our 17th annual Anatomy Awards. This is a very busy time of the year because... 
uh, the Oscars uh, are out, and we always do our Anatomy Awards, a parody of the Oscars, where we look at all the best in movie and television nudity. And, uh, you know, my team goes through every movie and television show anyway, so we not only have categories of the things we've done for 17 years, like Best Breast, Best Bud, etc., but find some amazing, wild, and crazy moments in celebrity nudity or movie and television nudity that we just have to share because it's not possible for people to see all the stuff that comes out. And uh, someone has to go through all this and, and decipher it. It's a public service, and I, and I think you guys do a great job. And also, uh, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a men and women public service because you've been doing um, nude men yes. as well. Yeah, in 2013, we launched MrMan.com, which is the male celebrity version of Mr. Skin. And we just recently had our third annual Manatomy Awards, which is pretty crazy. And uh, uh, there were some fun categories. Uh, Will Ferrell uh, won for Best Dick Dive and Get Hard. And uh, uh, we had uh, one guy actually won Best Balls. Uh, so it's, it's obviously very different, from, very different from what you'd see at Mr. Skin. But a lot of celebrities, uh, LeBron won for that funny moment in the NBA game where he pulled his shorts down for a second and you could see package uh, Lenny Kravitz, John Hamm, Nick Cannon, all were uh, man anatomy award winners this year. So that website's kicking butt also, no pun intended. So we're, we're doing real well. I got to tell you my uh, 80, she was like 85 years old at the time. I took my aunt to see Troy. Ah, okay. exactly, exactly. You know where yeah. I'm going. So yeah. yeah, and it was great. So uh, Brad Pitt as Achilles has one butt shot or whatever, and it was so sweet because the poor thing was starting to suffer from Alzheimer's, but she was razor sharp when she saw Brad Pitt's <laughs> butt, and she literally was like, "Ooh, my." <laughs> maybe there should maybe there should be some sort of medical uh, therapy. They should look into that for people that are developing Alzheimer's. Maybe that'll help. Absolutely, Matt. No, that's really cool. And I have to acknowledge because word balloon. You know, we do a lot of uh, geek culture your stuff uh morena and i'm going to screw up her last name but Bakarin, thank you yeah. in in deadpool boy that's yeah uh, that's <clears throat> what i'm most excited about that now obviously uh there was a that fun sex scene with morena Bakarin where she was topless with ryan reynolds but what i'm most excited about it was a, a superhero movie that was r-rated and yes. we need more of that because a lot of times my summers are talking about art house films and television and very little about what's in theaters just because all the PG-13, uh, you know, blockbuster yes. movies are out. And, boy, Deadpool killed it at the box office. I'm hopeful that more and more uh, adult-themed, uh, you know, blockbusters or, or superhero movies will be out because, boy, it doesn't hurt to get superheroes and uh, uh, nudity on the same movie. Absolutely. Watchmen had it for a moment. I know that. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Malin Ackerman, right? Yeah, Malin Ackerman, who's now on the show Billions on Showtime, and uh, yeah, and that did pretty well. But yeah, it just it, the ratio of uh, superhero movies with nudity via without nudity is unfortunately bad. But boy, with Deadpool, this could be good, and uh, uh, it'll be good for business because TV right now is is fantastic. There's so many shows with great nudity, but boy, if we could get some summer blockbusters with nudity, that now you're talking. I agree, man. No, and uh, I I think it is cool that. Uh, the, the studios are kind of testing things with more R-rated themes for superheroes. I'm I'm for it. I think just like anything, nothing should be restricted if it's a good idea. Well, if, if listen, it, if it fits, if it it's, fits, it's so silly that you could have a PG-13 movie with violence and people getting shot, but if a girl shows her breasts, that's like it changes it to an R rating. I mean, you and I, it's just not right, and yeah. Yeah, people are not gonna. 
their lives will not be ruined if they see a woman's breasts. In fact, they'll remember it the rest of their lives, and it'll be, it'll be one of the, the joyful things. I mean, everyone remembers, you know, the first time they saw a nude scene or, or a significant nude scene from their youth that they saw. It's a, it's a meaningful thing, and uh, there's no, no reason to keep nudity out of movies. You know, and uh, you and I are around the same age, and I, we were talking a little bit when you came to the radio station uh, about uh, our era and when, you know, we got, you know, our first, the, the women that made us realize we were men. The, oh, my the, God. Well, the Barbara, I always tell the people Edens, that the, you know, the go- yeah, I always tell people that the golden age of teen sex comedies, and I think teen true. sex comedies had the best nudity, uh, was 1980 and 1985 when you had Porky's, Last American Virgin, My Tudor, <laughs> uh, of course, Fast Times at Ridgemont High with Phoebe Cates at the 51 minute mark, the greatest nude scene of all time. Yes. So, wow. uh, to me, that was. <laughs> the the greatest era and that's when i was kind of coming of age and starting to you know tape my movies and and follow that stuff religiously and what a great time that 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 era was and on the mr man side because i feel obligated to make this uh about both sexes and everything is there is there an era for for male uh, nudity yeah i would say we're in the golden age of male nudity because of television um there's been m- m- much more opportunity uh, for male actors to to show their junk, if you will, because of shows like Game of Thrones or uh, uh, you know all the many uh, television shows that have nudity. Uh, there's just so many more places for actresses too, but w- with so many places for nudity, more and more men are doing nude scenes, which is good for the Mr. Man business, I'll tell you that. That's excellent. You know, uh, certainly Betty White made a big uh, splash <laughs> a few years ago when that playing card set came out, and we, yeah. all, and we all discovered, uh, you know, a, a little nude scene. That, or... Well, my friend, uh, Celebrity Sleuth, who ran Celebrity Sleuth magazine, actually owned those uh, playing cards, wow. and he shared them with me for my private collection, and we, via our radio prep services, released that stuff, and uh, it was pretty cool, because in the 1950s, she was an up-and-coming model, and hey, to make a buck, she posed nude, and they ended up on a deck of playing cards, and uh, she even autographed some pictures of those for him, because she had a good sense of humor about it, and uh, that, that is a neat thing in the history of celebrity nudity. That's excellent, man. No, and I, you know, it seems like Cloris Leachman is really cool that way as well. Yep. And uh, were there any other like, um, like, are there Tina Louise scenes that we don't know? Ginger from Oh, there's tons of uh, actresses that you just mentioned. Cloris Leachman. Uh, yes. She did a movie called The People Next Door in the late '60s. Uh, also, Crazy Mama, a Jonathan Demi movie with Ralph Malf, Donnie Most, where <laughs> she was topless. And I don't know if a lot of people remember that. And uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. Tina Louise did a movie called Mean Dog Blues about 10 years after uh, she was done with Gilligan's Island and at the hour and 18 minute mark she's uh, on a massage table topless and I think we have that at MrSkin.com and I think people would be blown away now uh, Dawn Wells unfortunately never did a nude scene and uh, uh, Lovey never did one either but yeah Ginger d- uh, did a nude scene Excellent. Natalie Schaffner, uh, lovely, yeah. of course. And, yeah. I was, and, you know, I was jotting down some, uh, some geek idols from the past. <coughs> uh, I know Michelle Pfeiffer did a little bit, but I'm thinking... Yeah, the, and a uh, movie uh, called Into the Night in 1985 and, uh, Jeff with Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. And, and David Bowie. Great movie. Yeah, right. Exactly. Absolutely. And I was going to ask about the other cat women, like the older ones, like Julie Newmar and Eartha Kitt, for example. Yeah, uh, Eartha Kitt never did. Julie Newmar did a movie called McKenna's Gold. <laughs> which was a uh, kind of a Western movie from the late 60s, and she went skinny dipping. And it's really a hot scene. It happens about an hour and 11 minutes in. You see her butt as she's getting out 
of the water, but uh, she's completely nude swimming around. You can see through the water, but when she gets out, you get the real nice shot. And I got to tell you, uh, uh, it's it's one of those it's one of those nude scenes that people, especially fans of Batman, would would love to see. And we we have that at MrSkin.com. Outstanding, man. Yeah, let people know how uh, how they, they can be- become members. And, yeah. uh, and and enjoy your excellent service at Mr. Oh, Skin. Oh, thank you. And, yeah, you and just, Mr. Man, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You just go to MrSkin.com. It's a uh, really easy. It's a it's a database where you can find out if any actress in the history of movies or television has ever been naked. The search is real easy, and we uh, we list all their best movies for nudity. And even if an actress hasn't been nude, chances are they've been in underwear and a bikini, and we'll have that uh, to tide you over until they do their first nude scene. So. <laughs> That's excellent, man. Listen, I'm going to let you go because I know you you got a you got a busy day ahead of you with nudity you never rests, shaky. Yeah, I, I respect yeah. that, man. Absolutely, yeah. and no, come back and I'll have uh, the audience kind of uh, give some requests and stuff, and you'll you, I'm sure you'll. Be I like, would love it. Yeah. Happy to. It's my favorite thing to do. It's my pleasure, Mister Skid. Thanks a lot for talking today, and uh, we'll check back in with you in the months ahead. My pleasure. Thanks. There you go, Mr. Skin and Ethan Van Skyver to uh, wrap up today's Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed uh, the conversations today. It was a pleasure to bring them to you. Brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Some of the amazing deals happening right now at InStockTrades.com include image things like Hit, Trade Paperback Volume 2, 1957. Uh, Hit is uh, 30% off and just $13.99. You can get from... Grant Morrison and my buddy Chris Burnham, Nameless, the hardcover, is available now. 42% off, $14.49. You can get Robin Trade Paperback Volume 2, reaching back for some excellent stuff from Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle and others. 45% off, $13.74. Just a few of the great deals happening at InStockTrades.com. Thanks for listening to Word Balloon. John Suntress reminding you that uh, I'm going to have another show in just a few days because uh, I am uh, pleasantly backed up with a lot of great interviews. Uh, I I thank you again if uh, I saw you at C2E2. Thank you very much for saying hello. And uh, please, uh, I appreciate your uh, patronage of Word Balloon and the fact that you're letting your friends know about Word Balloon, too. There are new listeners every month, and that's just fantastic. And it's because you guys are spreading the word. So thanks a lot. If you like what you hear on Word Balloon or if you don't like it, do me a favor. If you listen via iTunes, would you write a review? Would you rate the show? It helps out. Um, It keeps the show uh, up there. And I think when people look for comic book podcasts, it lets them know that Word Balloon is one of uh, the shows that everybody likes. So that's fantastic. Uh, If you want to email me, it's john at wordballoon.com. Follow me on Facebook under my name, John Suntress, or on Twitter uh, at uh, at John Wordballoon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016.